Father, we exalt you and glorify you and praise your holy name because you are the one who has ordained from before time began all that takes place in the course of your sovereign history. You are the one who has created this world as the young people were studying this morning in six days. And you are the one who sustains all of the necessary elements of this universe to hold together to sustain your purposes right here on planet earth as we seek to bring glory to your name as we seek to understand the great God who has revealed himself in the glories of nature and more precisely in the fullness of redemption which is available for us to understand in your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for these gifts that you have ordained to sustain your people from now to the time of your kingdom's consummation, ultimately where everything will be complete according to your plan and each one will worship together who has been redeemed and ransomed by the blood of Christ, singing praises to your great name forever, Lord, without any shadow of darkness or sin to plague us anymore. And with nothing but the pure and manifest presence of a holy God and the absolute purity of those who are washed from the stain of sin by the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on their behalf. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have eternally. And now as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would use it to sustain us. Use your word to wash us, God, to perfect, Lord, us yet more into the image of Christ our Lord, to sanctify our ears, to sanctify our understanding, to sanctify our lives as we seek to live in light of your truth, to equip us on the way to give us strong armaments against the enemy who would seek to assail us on our journey of glorifying you. Lord, to equip us to proclaim the message of truth and its purity and clarity to the unbeliever who yet stands in enmity with you. And Lord, to give us the comfort and the confidence that in Christ we have all of the riches and everything pertaining to life and godliness and eternal life overflowing abundantly, God, because of the promises of the new covenant fulfilled in his blood. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have. Pray that you would maximize it for your own glory. And as we draw our attention, lift our eyes to behold Christ in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we turn our attention to the scriptures by turning, if you would with me today, to Genesis chapter 13. As we continue our series following the life and legacy of Abram. Abram, whose name will later be changed, as you know, to Abraham, at this time, is parting ways with his nephew. Young people, what's Abraham's nephew's name? Just a little pop quiz. Lot is correct. So Lot and Abraham, Abram have so far been traveling together. Recalling our message last week, we noted how Lot was with Abraham as he journeyed south from Haran or east from Ur. Uh, whichever direction he took to Canaan, Lot was by his side. As he made his journey through the promised land, Lot was there as well. Even when he went down to Egypt at the time of famine, when he came up from Egypt upon his repentance that we studied a couple weeks ago, Lot was by his side. But now Lot's uh, flocks have increased, Abraham's flocks have increased, and as we've studied the problem of plenty now, has come upon them before it was famine. Now there's not enough space. And so Lot and Abram are parting ways. Our title of last week's message was Two Roads Diverged. And these two roads taking separate paths, sort of why in the direction of Lot's destiny, if you will, and 
his purposes, his aims, and where he chooses to settle, and Abram, where he sets his face, there is much more than just a practical choice of action here illustrated. We have two directions spiritually, not just geographically, that are in view. And as Genesis 13 continues, we build on last week's message by noting the contrast between Lot's choice of direction and Abram's choice of direction. The title of this morning's message is just that, In Contrast. Or maybe a better title, Abram versus Lot. The differences we've seen between the two that are illustrated in this event. The aim of this morning's message is to draw our attention to the Lord, realizing that we are easily distracted. It's easy to identify with Abram in our pride, but more honestly, we ought to identify with Lot. It's easy to be distracted by greener pastures of that which the eye or the senses or our flesh promise contentment. It's much harder to walk by faith, especially when the promised land doesn't seem so luscious, doesn't seem so bountiful as these distant regions like Egypt or the Eden that was lost or the uh, plains of Zoar, which boasts the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the lush fields that are irrigated for uh, raising bountiful crops. Therefore, we have much to learn from our text today. So turning to Genesis 13 and considering verses 10 through 18, would you stand as you're able out of reverence for the scriptures today and hear now the word of God as, as it is proclaimed in your hearing. Genesis 13, 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that, that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Often we draw a distinction in apologetics between superficial similarities and substantial similarities. And this distinction is... We can, uh, it's important to draw this or uh, to apply this rule in this text as well. Without considering the covenantal perspective, it would appear that Abram and Lot have plenty in common, would it not? They come from the same family clan, their uncle and nephew. Both are successful herdsmen. They have these flocks, they have servants in tow, they have their family that joins them in their nomadic lifestyle. Servants and flocks are abounding. They dwell in relatively the same place right now. They're in Canaan. 
They both share many of the geographical, cultural, historical, and vocational backgrounds. Uh, They dwelt in the same city. They have common ancestry, so on and so forth. The context of our passage today makes clear that these common traits and shared experiences are in fact superficial. They are merely window dressing compared to the matters of the heart. This is where the substantial differences lie between Abram's choice of direction and Lot's preferences in our text today. When it came to the really important things, things like walking by faith, seeking the Lord over and above worldly comforts, visiting the altar of devotion to Yahweh, and living not by sight but by faith and according to His word, In our story today, Abram and Lot illustrate stark contrasts in this chapter of redemptive history. But we should also note that Abram was no stranger to this kind of weakness. Although in our story here, Abram, as we mentioned last week, is the exemplary role. He serves having freshly visited the altar, seeking the face of the Lord, calling upon his name, and repenting. We should note that Abram himself walked by sight rather than faith when he went south to Egypt. And this illustrates to us that Lot is not beyond the reach of sovereign grace. And to remind ourselves, lest we, you know, in this compare and contrast message today, think Lot as a reprobate, we should remind ourselves that no, Lot was righteous. He was made so by trust in the future and coming Messiah in spite of his flesh motivated life choices that are evident in our text today. Lot was saved by grace from the cities of the plains, which were fraught with all kinds of evil. And Abram serves as a priestly and mediatory role later in our text to actually participate in God's plan to rescue righteous Lot from the cities of the plains. But as far as our story illustrates, the account today illustrates, there is quite the contrast between the faith evident in Abram's actions in, during this trial and test and those of Lot. Stark contrasts are illustrated in this chapter of redemptive history. As Moses recounts the incident, again, Moses, the author of Genesis, as he recounts the in- incident where Abram and his nephew part ways, his commentary provides a back-to-back analysis of these events and their pending consequences. You'll notice in our text today, I trust as we work through it, that Abraham uh, does one thing and Lot does another. For instance, Lot moves his tents towards Sodom, Abraham moves his tents towards Hebron. There's sort of a parallel account of what happens here, and as those points line up, it illustrates real differences, substantial differences. Abram serves to illustrate the virtues of covenant faithfulness, its benefits, its promises, and its testimony to the unbelieving world. Abram serves to illustrate the uh, virtues, the the glories, or the attending um, witness of those who trust God's word and those who find themselves in covenant faithfulness, holding on fast to him, to his word, to his promises. Meanwhile, Lot reminds the reader of the reach of sovereign grace that even when these things are abandoned at a moment of weakness and we choose to move our tents closer to Sodom, that we are not beyond the reach of God's grace. God will raise up salvation for Lot through his significant son, if only, so to speak, by the skin of his teeth, saved 
in more biblical language, as though through fire. Praise God for his steadfast love, encouraging the church as he does so through the example of Abraham and also teaching us that he pursues the prodigal and will go and get that one lost sheep as he did, so to speak, with Lot. Thus, we have an introduction to our text today. Here's a heading. The differences between Lot and Abram lie in three areas. They lie in their affections, the things that they love and pursue, appreciate and desire. The differences between Abram and Lot, secondly, lie in their portions. That would be the return or the promises, the benefit or the consequences of their actions. And number three, the differences between Abram and Lot lie in their residence, where they choose to set up camp, where they call home. Affections, portions, and residence. Number one, the differences between Abram and Lot lie in their affections. We're going to spend a bit of time this morning on this biblical concept we introduced earlier in today's worship text of lifting up the eyes. Notice in parallel fashion that we have two references to lifting up the eyes in our text today. The first one, Genesis 13.10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Again, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. Now later in verse 14, there's a parallel passage. The Lord said to Abram, Abram, after Lot has separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. So you see here, there's a parallel and there's a contrast. Lot lifts up his eyes to the Jordan Valley. Abram is uh, called by the Lord, by the word of the Lord, to lift up his eyes across the land of Canaan. This illustra- illustrates a substantial difference between Lot and Abram at this point. Lifting up the eyes represents affections, attention, desires, that, was, that which captivates our being. Lifting up the eyes. There are several references I want to touch upon to expand on this point. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy 4? Deuteronomy 4 is warning language and includes this very concept. It helps us to understand this idea of affections and setting one's attention on the correct thing. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 15, we have this in the law of God. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Pay attention to what you pay attention to, in other words. Watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Let me just pause for a question for the young people. What commandment is at issue here? What commandment is being expounded? Thou shalt not what? Anybody know? Listen, don't make a carved image for yourselves or the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, and it goes on to say the same about animals and fish and birds. What commandment? Does anyone know? Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. That is correct. So this is a commentary expounding on the second commandment. 
Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. And Deuteronomy bids us to the book of Deuteronomy. Here we have this instruction to watch yourself very carefully lest you do that. Now notice verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Again, that language in verse 19, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. So these prohibitions, these laws against idolatry include in them, implicit in them is this idea of what do you lift up your eyes unto? Are you proud of what your hands can fashion? Are you proud of what your mind can conceive? Are you encouraged and strengthened and emboldened? Are you uh, comforted by that which is part and parcel to creation itself and does not recognize the power behind it? Do you place your hope in greener pastures and not the one who's made them? Are you moved to quaking fear by a trial, not lifting up your eyes to the one who is sovereign over suffering as well as over blessing? We are called as believers, and it is exemplified in Abraham's faith to lift up our eyes higher than the struggles of this life. Lift up our eyes higher than the mere promises of survival and prosperity that are available in the material realm. Higher than the, even the amazing things that we see provisionally evidencing God in creation. Lift up your eyes higher than all those things to see the one who is sovereign over it all. Aim high with your sight, with your conscience, with your understanding, with your affections, with your desires, and maintain that perspective if you will, that helps you uh, in these times when it is difficult. Abram did a good job of this. He exemplified this in Genesis 13. Lot did not. Another passage, Ezekiel 23. Uh, In Ezekiel 23, there's warning language that is associated with where the eyes in this picture set their gaze. Ezekiel 23, verses 26 and 27. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. So these things that are referenced here, clothing, jewels, material wealth and possessions, or the promises of Egypt, this humanistic, uh, self-worshipping, idolatrous land, these things... The people were lifting their eyes up to them. They were exalting them. They were setting their affections upon them, their desires, their ambitions. They were basing their comfort, their security, and their hope in in things of mere creation, material possessions, and the like, and the promises that this world can offer. And by way of judgment and discipline, the prophet says, these things will be taken away. Why? So that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. Isn't that a helpful context when we go back and we see that Lot lifted up his eyes in Genesis 13, 10 and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So the desire for Egypt, the promise of material wealth, lifting up your eyes to that which does not rise above the creation, but sets its affections, its hope 
and its confidence and comfort and security merely in what is made, that was what Lot was exhibiting here. The idea, again, of lifting up one's eyes in the most basic terms is to direct one's attention. Sometimes in the Bible it says, lift up your eyes to the east, and it merely means directing one's attention, but it can mean, as our two texts, three in fact, witness much more. The context can indicate more than just a function of the senses, like that of sight, you know, lift up your eyes, look over here, but also it can, it can represent looking up to someone. That's a phrase that an idiom that's common in our culture is not, I, I really looked up to this person, I looked up to that, uh, uh, that person or, or what have you, or this idea. So holding in high esteem, uh, reverencing, uh, honoring, exalting in our affections, investing with superior value, uh, something that enjoys a high place of primacy. This is the idea of the lifted eyes. And so the difference between Abram and Lot lies in their affections. Where do they lift their eyes? The eyes of Lot were lifted to the promise of Egypt-like prosperity. The eyes of Abram were lifted by the word of the Lord. The Lord says, lift your eyes, draw your attention to my promises. Draw your attention to the terms of my covenant. Look to what my word has established for you and for your lineage. This is all the difference in the world. Abram's lifted eyes noticed something entirely different. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. This could illustrate the expanse of what God's purposes are in his promises and in his word. Lift up your eyes to what God has planned to do in his holy scriptures. How do we change? How do we set a right? How do we repent of our wayward affections, lifting up our eyes to things that we can tangibly touch, feel, see in this life? How do we repent of our idolatry, our Egypt, our utopian impulse that seeks to better our circumstances, but denying the path that God has ordained sovereignly to get there? We do so by turning to God's word, as Abraham did. God himself spoke to Abram and said, Lift up your eyes to my works. Lift up your eyes to my promises. Lift up your eyes, focus your attention, hold in high esteem, value above all else the things that I will do and see me as the chief architect of your life. See me as the chief navigator of where you will pitch your tent. Don't look elsewhere. Don't cast your eyes low to the things of this world. Isaiah 40, there's more to the positive this idea of lifting, one, uh, lifting one's eyes is echoed in the prophet's words, Isaiah 40, 25, and 26. To whom will, uh, then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God is jealous for his glory. And if we lift up our eyes merely to the things that he has made, we are missing the glorious revelation that he is the one that puts every star in place. He is the one that organizes every fact of history. He is the one that has ordered every circumstance according to his degree. He asked rhetorically, to whom then will you compare me? And applying this verse, we can say, 
that when we lift up our eyes to lesser things, it is idolatry because we are comparing that which only God can accomplish, only God can fulfill, only God can satisfy to lesser things. Things that are made. As the author Paul in Romans says, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator and exchange the glory of God for created things. One last passage on this lifting up the eyes. We won't turn there, but Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays for the church and by extension for us. Yes, the church thousands of years after he wrote that the eyes of our understanding may be enlightened. Paul is praying that the eyes of the church, the bride of Christ, would be lifted up. And what would the apostle have us fix our eyes upon? The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ultimate significant son, the son of Abram who is revealed in the fullness of time. Lift up your eyes. Let the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart, as it were, be enlightened to understand Christ in all his glory and understand the path of redemption that God has laid out for us and the greener pastures of hope in his shed blood alone. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The city of man cannot compare to this. The cities of the plains cannot boast this kind of assurance and these kind of riches. The things that this world offers us are cheap substitutes, imitations that perish with using moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But when we lift our eyes higher, we see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Ephesians 1.19, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The difference between Abram and Lot lie, uh, the differences lie in their affections, where they lifted their eyes. And again, we ask, where do we lift our eyes today? That has to do with attention, lifting up our eyes. Secondly, object, lift up your eyes to what? And just real briefly here, because we've already covered it in context, Lot lifts up his eyes to the Jordan Valley, well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Let me remind you, and also like the land of Egypt. And let me remind you of what we talked about last week, wherein man has this wistful longing. He has this regret and this separation anxiety, if you will, from Eden. And he feels that his state is not perfect and he longs to have it addressed. In spite of all the secularism that has flood, flooded across our culture like a wave of unbelief, nevertheless, we are still made in God's image and still retain in our humanity, intrinsic to our being, the cultural memory of that which was lost, paradise lost. But the scriptures say that there is only one way that it can be regained. And we use that picture of the closing of Eden's door and the guarding with the cherub and flaming swords to illustrate to us that it is through the sword, the pierced blood of Jesus' side, executive judgment stands between man and the reclamation, the repossession, going back into Eden. In order for heaven to be gained, in order for eternal life to be a reality, in order for salvation to be realized, someone must die in our place. This is the gospel. So don't lift up your eyes to a promise of a shortcut to Eden. You can get it by, through the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, you cannot. Those men are, men are exceedingly wicked. 
Don't believe a shortcut to Eden through, you know, the latest policies that, you know, the next election and candidate and presidential hopeful wants to offer. No, they cannot. Men are exceedingly wicked in our land, even today. The only way back is to lift up your eyes to the one who through his shed blood, through his torn side, through the veil of his flesh, has secured entry for us beyond the veil into the presence of a holy God. We lift our eyes to Jesus Christ. The Jordan Valley represents misplaced affections. It represents an idol to which Lot was tempted to lift his eyes. Canaan represents the place and the promises of God's work through his lineage of redemption unto bringing the Messiah and uh, through the sacrifice and through the sacrifice of the same securing our hope for eternal life. There is contentment that faith brings, trusting the promises and calling of God in spite of apparent greener pastures. The Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes, look to the place where you are. Be content where you are, where I have called you, where ground zero of the promises of God are assured. For Abraham, this was a, Abram at this time, a physical location. For us, it's a spiritual reality. It's in Christ. Abram may have been tempted in a weak, more weaker moment. Maybe he, during the time, or as we see, when he was not revisiting the altar, but uh, looking to the promise of Egypt, he was tempted to lift his eyes elsewhere. But in this moment, he was listening to the word of the Lord to look to God's plan for salvation. Thus, the object of his affections testified to his faith. The spirit of God inside our father of the faith, this patriarchal figure, illustrating a difference difference between Abram and Lot lies in their affections, both the attention where they fixed their uh, goals and their ambitions, their affections, and also the object upon what they rested. Second major point this morning, the difference between Abram and Lot, the differences between Abram and Lot lie in their portions. Portions are like reward, what is promised, the legacy, that which follows by way of benefit, um, cashing in, as it were, on the investment. There's a stark contrast here. There's an aftermath to these decisions that's prefigured with a couple statements. Um, with respect to Sodom, the statement, two statements in question are in verse 11, or verse 10, and uh, verse 13. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in brackets there. So Moses is anticipating judgment to come on these cities. There was an indictment. These people were living on borrowed time, that is to say. Why? Verse 13 tells us, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. If you lift up your eyes to a superficial promise of prosperity, but in reality you're pitching your tent among those who are wicked sinners, are great sinners against the Lord. What will be the aftermath? What will be the portion of that decision? We find the answer to this as Genesis continues to unfold. The contrast between lifting up your eyes to Sodom and lifting up your eyes to the promises that Canaan represent could not be more stark as we pick up on the consequences in Genesis 19. Turn there with me, if you would, a few pages and let's pick up on the story of Lot. 
upon the destruction of the city where he set up camp. In 19.1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So here we have Lot residing in Sodom, even in a place of prominence. He's there at the gate. Lot saw them. He rose to meet them, bowed himself uh, with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And so, as you recall the story, they do. Now, these angels are, are messengers sent from the Lord, and it's preceded by the intercession of Abram himself. Remember, Abraham had pleaded with God, if there's even 10 righteous men, will you spare the city? There's not even 10 righteous men, so the city will be destroyed. Nevertheless, in God's mercy, he will spare one righteous man, namely Lot and his family, at least some of them. In verse 19, behold your servant. Um, let's see, I think I need to move a little further down here. Let me see if I can find my uh, reference. Verse 30. As we uh, continue to pick up on the story, as we pick up on the story a little later as it continues, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, O father, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that, he may, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. She did not know, uh, he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, that you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And she did not know, and he did not know that she lay down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn born a son his name, uh, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So as we see the aftermath of lifting up your eyes to Sodom versus setting your affections upon the covenant promises of Canaan, the legacy of these two families could not be a sharper contrast. So out of fear, um, they're taking refuge, Lot and his two daughters, in a cave. Out of fear, his daughters will not go out and seek a conventional relationship and husband. And out of fear that their legacy will die out, there's this incestuous relationship. And then the fruit of this ungodly union is such that the children that are born to them, they father nations that become thorns in the side of the covenant people on into the future. So the aftermath, the portions, if you will, uh, between, that illustrate the contrast between Abram and Lot, we find in the generational fallout, the tragic fallout of taking refuge in the city of man that shows up even in Lot's family. Compare Lot's offspring to Abram's offspring. A Abram fathered Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 sons of Israel. Judah was the uh, son upon whom the, through whom that family lineage would bring the Messiah one day. And all who are in Christ today, even you and I, if you're a believer in this room, have been grafted in 
spiritually speaking, to that same family line, such that you and I are sons and daughters of Abraham, so that as history continues, the promises of the sons of Abraham being more numerous than the dust, grains of dust on the earth, is coming to pass. But what of Lot? Well, his legacy did not, was not so honorable. His legacy was marked by enemies of God. Is marked by fear and cowering in darkness. Is marked by the loss of his once prosperous lands and holdings and herdsmen and servants and so forth. And all the riches of Sodom hardly seem worth it now when his wife turns around and looks at this flaming city and it's instantly turned into a pillar of salt. All of this is the aftermath, the portions of looking away from the covenant promises of God, of treating lightly and taking for granted his great salvation and lifting up our eyes to the things of this world, to other things. Now there's more language in the text that illustrates a difference, a distinction here. Verse 11, in this time of choosing, it says, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. So two thoughts. One, he chose for himself, illustrating an autonomous decision, his idea This is Lot's best ingenuity. This isn't the word of God. This is the plan and the scheme of Lot. And where did he journey? He journeyed to the east, the direction away from the Garden of Eden. There's a parallel in this direction that he took that we see all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve are banished to the east. Remember Cain? He's banished even farther east. And now we see here in a similar picture, Lot taking refuge in the cities of the plains further east still, if you will. Lot chooses for himself a direction that indicates he is moving farther and farther away from the significant son and covenant head, Abram, and moving farther and farther away from the presence of the Lord and his purposes through the covenant. This is an illustration of autonomy, deciding what, you know, making up your own rules and serving oneself and obedience. Contrast this with verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you, the Lord says of Abraham. Abram, prior to that, just to make our last point even stronger, he had promised once again, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And then the word of the Lord comes to Abram and says, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and journeyed east. Abraham hears the word of the Lord saying, arise, walk, and so he obeys. The direction that Lot takes is by his own ingenuity. Once again, the direction that Abram takes is listening to the word of the Lord. And thus the procedure, the process by which uh, Abram chooses which way to go, where to set up his tents, if you will, and Lot uh, brings up the differences between them as well, points them out. Arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land. And what does the Lord say? I will give it. Lot chooses for himself a better life. At least he thought in his best estimation, that's what it would give him. Abraham trusts that the Lord will make him and his offspring great on the earth. He trusts that God will give him the land. It's the difference of placing your hope in the promises and word of God and placing your hope in your best efforts. How many testimonies of believers 
share this change in priority. You know, when we consider Lot beside Abraham in this example, it's a difference of what the Lord gives, you know, trusting and uh, acknowledging what the Lord gives versus what we choose for ourselves. Now, what the Lord gives us to go through a lot of times on the face of it is heavy. It's hard to bear. If this is the portion that the Lord has given you, well, and it, it includes trial, testing, grief, sorrow, loss, uh, and, and many other ways that our faith may be tested, will we still lift our eyes to him, have faith that even though this land is not as bountiful just now as Sodom appears on the horizon, nevertheless, what the Lord gives is a superior gift to what we will choose for ourselves? This is the basis of the testimony of every true believer. At a certain point, they realize that what the Lord gives is better than what we could choose for ourselves. We choose, before we come to know the Lord, we choose a life of wanderlust, of wandering here and there and everywhere, seeking to satisfy that longing of the soul, seeking some path by which we can be satisfied and fulfilled. And it leads from one sin to the next sin, from one dead end to the next, from one sorrowful uh, lesson learned the hard way to the next one, and ultimately ends in ultimate separation from the Lord and just deserved hell eternal until the Spirit awakens our soul to trust that what the Lord gives, in spite of the difficulty that sometimes attends it, is so much better than what we choose for ourselves. You see, Lot was, uh, he was anxious for heaven And he so lusted after that peaceful life and existence and prosperity that much like Esau, he sold his birthright, or like Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge, Lot was tempted to do the same. If I can get heaven now, is it ever worth the cost? No. You'll end up with neighbors who are wicked and sinful and uh, disruptive of your family. And the fallout will be horrific, even if it is a fallout of discipline and corrective, the lot after all was saved. But look at the damage of not trusting what the Lord gives and instead choosing for yourselves what you think is the better way. On the other hand, what does the Lord offer us in Jesus Christ today? He offers us salvation, abundant life, better to suffer for a vapor, for a mere moment in this life and to gain riches beyond compare, heaven eternal, the new heavens and new earth. This is walking by faith. The portion of the believer so far eclipses the promises of Sodom that it's not even to be compared, but it requires faith to realize that because oftentimes the journey here has many trials, darkness, the shadow of darkness, a shadow of valley, the shadow of death, and so forth along the way. I think of that worship song that we often sing, You are my portion. You are my portion. If you ever wondered what that means, it's exemplified by Abram's desire and direction in this uh, text here. Abram placed his faith that the portion or the return that God had given him by his word through his covenant was superior to what the the cities of the plains could boast. Final point this morning. The differences between Abram and Lot lie not only in their affections, not only in their portions, but also in their residence, the place they chose to dwell. Just a couple more parallel phrases in our text today. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan 
while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So you see there that phrase, Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. Abram also moved his tent, verse 18. First we have 17, arise, walk through the length, breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So we have two different places, residences, places to call home, illustrated in contrast. Lot moves his tent to Sodom, Abram moves his tent to Mamre slash Hebron. What does Sodom represent? A little pop quiz for young people. Uh, what is the legacy of Ham? A common question these days in our Genesis series. What's the legacy of Ham? It's Ham and the? That is correct. Ham and the city builders. Sodom and Gomorrah represent the legacy of Ham. Faith in the cities of the plains. A place where man pools his efforts to best address his needs by sharing the burden among uh, uh, those who uh, are unified in this humanistic endeavor. Think of the Tower of Babel, the quintessential, the classic example of this. At Babel, they trusted in their technology. They baked their bricks really hard, as we have studied. They built their tower, impressive. Why? Because they feared dispersion. And now centralizing their efforts, and pooling their resources together, and defending themselves against fear of the future, they would, in their own strength, and through the unity of their language and their purpose, assure for themselves the best possible existence now in a post-Eden world. This is the legacy of the city builder, the one who seeks by his own strength, by his own merits, by his own ability, by his own talents to secure the best possible future. Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. He journeyed east. Why? Because he saw promise in the cities of the plains. In the, village, in the city or in the Jordan Valley, it was well watered, but there was Sodom and, and there was Sodom and Gomorrah, and these were the areas that represented, in this instance, once again, the promises of the city builder, the hope and the collective uh, hope in the in the collective efforts of man. But verse thirteen, we learn the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The city of man is also represented in Cain's impulse to build a city. We remember Nimrod, one of the early descendants, who also built a city. Babylon becomes archetypical, again, a classic example of man's self-styled efforts. Uh, the Tower of Babel, as we've just mentioned, and Sodom and Gomorrah all speak to the city of man. You know, in his magnum opus, Augustine, Augustine wrote the city of God. And the book basically uh, bases its entire premise on this contrast that we see throughout the scriptures, the city of God and the city of man. This is a distinction between the faith of Abraham and anyone, Lot, Nimrod, Ham, and otherwise who trusts in the city of man. Hebrews says that Abraham, he chose to go to a city whose designer, he set his face towards an un an unseen place whose designer and builder is God. Uh, young people, where is the true city of God? One day, all believers will gather there. It's bigger and better than anything we could have possibly imagined. It's overflowing with riches. What is the name of that city? Does anyone know? Very good. The new heavens and new earth, sometimes called the new Jerusalem. That is the city of God. Now, if you lift up your eyes 
not high enough, you will try to build the city of God in your own strength. But God is jealous of what he has ordained through his covenant and through the work of Christ alone. The only city worth dwelling in, the only city, uh, ultimately speaking, worth setting your affections upon, the only one that represents hope for humanity is the city that God has constructed. It's the order which he has established by his law. It's the central engineering that he has deployed, whereby unity is through Christ and his blood and those who are ransomed, redeemed, adopted, and grafted in in family relationship to himself and to Abraham, a picture of this, and then joining together in that beautiful community, communion with each other, but even more importantly, communion with the author and finisher of our faith, with the architect and builder of the city of God. This is the residence that Abram ultimately lifted his eyes up to. It was the place that he sought to dwell. He moved his tent, a temporary structure, and that is significant too. Abram never had a home, properly speaking. He lived this nomadic, transient, and kind of sojourner lifestyle his entire life. But it was a picture of this very hope of that which is foundational and substantial and eternal is made by the hands of God. But where does he settle? He settles by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And what does he do there? He builds an altar. Again, this is significant. Upon Abram's repentance, we have noted in verse 4 of the same chapter, he returns to the place where he had made an altar at the first And this was a reference to the altar that he built after the Lord appeared to him in chapter 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Later he travels from there to the hill country east of Bethel, pitches his tent, Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Some men build cities, other men build altars. Those who are distracted by the promises of this world, they flock to the city of man. Those who trust in the Messiah and his salvation, they build altars, as it were. What does an altar represent? The place where the sufficient sacrifice is offered to put us in right standing with the holy God. It's the place whereby we remember the foundation of our hope, the word of God that came by promise, that will be fulfilled in due time. Even for us, things that we yet look forward to, our eternal life and salvation complete as we are ransomed, not just from our sin and its consequences, but ransomed unto perfect communion and heaven in the new heavens and new earth one day with the Lord. This is what the altars of Abram pictured. This point of remembrance, this point of contact with God's word, his promises, and his assurance that he gives that he will accomplish the place of dwelling and secure it for us, even as Christ has gone in New Testament revelation to prepare a mansion for each of his own. Thus, we see the differences again between Abram and Lot lie in not just their affections, what they love, but also their portions, what they receive, and their residences, where they choose to set up camp. Lot chooses to set up camp in the city of man, Abram sets up camp in Mamre and Hebron. Now, we don't have time to visit these texts. They're in your notes if you have a copy. On your own time study, Genesis 18, 1 through 2. And notice what God does in this region. 
the Oaks of Mamre, Hebron, they become extremely important in the history of redemption. The Lord himself visits Abram at these very oaks in Genesis 18, 1 through 2. Again, he visits him. And this area, Hebron, becomes a Levitical city and a city of refuge, which is a picture of a place of God's building. Joshua 20, verse 7. Joshua 21, 11. Hebron becomes David's kingly home. He resides there, if I recall, for seven some years. 2 Samuel 5, verses 5. Hebron is the place of the anointing of David as king in 2 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 4, 2 Kings 2, 11. That is to say, this place where Abram set up camp was extremely important. It represented God's plans through the future. Abram was one in a long line of significant sons in the Messianic line. And so David would find residence in Hebron one day as a significant son to come. He himself also a type of Christ or a picture in shadowy and symbolic form of who Jesus would be. It became the seat of the kingly authority. The one who spoke of the Messiah to come put his, uh, place his residence there, his palace, as it were, for a, peri- a period of time. And all the while, men of God were visited by the Lord in his revelation as through the course of redemptive history at the Oaks of Mamre, if you will, at Hebron that city that becomes so significant to redemptive history. Uh, young people, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, on the other hand? What happened to those cities? Got they got destroyed. How were they destroyed? Does anyone remember? God. God rained fire from the sky. God rained fire from the sky and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus, these are the, this is the legacy or the fallout the, of history of these two places of residence. The place that represents... The promises of the flesh and, of, and what this world can offer is destroyed by fire, a picture of hell itself. But the place where Abram moved his tent, Oaks of Mamre at Hebron, it becomes a place of redemptive revelation. And so we see, as we bring this message to a close, that Abram and Lot illustrate differences. And by this account, our hope can be drawn to the promises of God and His Holy Word, can it not? Again, the aim of this morning's message, to direct our attention to the Lord, realizing that like Lot and Abram, we are easily distracted. Hebron became home to an altar of the Lord. Our spiritual health, brothers and sisters, even in our day can be measured by our wandering from the altar of the Lord. When Abram wandered from the altar of the Lord, he got into all sorts of trouble in Egypt. When Lot wandered from the altar of the Lord in Hebron, he got into all sorts of trouble in Sodom. And when we lift up our eyes to other places, we build an altar to ourselves and we get into all sorts of trouble. As we seek to apply this message, think of ways that you can return to the altar of the Lord. Set up a place of remembrance in your own home, husbands and fathers in this room, and open up the scriptures and recount the deeds of the Lord in family worship. It can sometimes be a chaotic time. I mean, testimony, myself as testimony to that. A lot of distractions in the room. Nevertheless, if you regularly make the Word of God a feature in your schedule, in your day-to-day activities, you are applying in this one small way today's message. Spiritual health can be measured by how far we wander from the altar of the Lord. Remember, next week is Communion Sunday. 
at at the table of the Lord is an altar, as it were. It's a remembrance. It's a touchstone of our faith. We remember and proclaim the work of Jesus Christ. So come in expectation and come moved by what the broken body and what the spilled cup represent or what the poured cup represent. Jesus' body and his blood. The bread and the wine speak in a memorial or as as an altar occasion to that which substantially saves us. Do not wander far from communion and its essence and its meaning. Do not forsake the assembly of yourself together. Join with the beloved in worshiping and sharing of the faithfulness of the Lord as we seek to fellowship and draw our attention and affections. Even through our worship and the songs that we sing, part of their function is to hold our affections, to arrest them and direct our attention to the Lord and what He has done. Why? Because we are so easily distracted. As we do so, we will find ourselves not wandering, separating from the faith of Abraham or God's purposes that were evident through the legacy of the patriarchs of old, all the way through the significant son, Jesus Christ, to come. But we will find ourselves in this way, pitching our tents by the oaks of memory, so to speak, and finding a consolation at the altar set up in Hebron and looking forward to Jesus Christ ransoming us and redeeming us completely and fully from our sin and eventually relocating us to that place of promise, the promised land of glory. Yes, even the new heavens and the new earth. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the promises of your covenant. Forgive us for times when we have forgotten that they are more sure, more strong, and more to be desired than anything that this lesser world, man and his ingenuity, or any ideas and concepts, philosophies, anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of our God could boast. Lord, let us see them for the cheap imitations they are, and let us reject the appeal of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let us turn away from the city of man and all that this world boasts by material promise, and let us lift up our eyes to Jesus Christ, who is crucified on Calvary for our sin, who rose from the dead, certifying our own resurrection one day, who ascended before the Father to intercede, to prepare a place for us, and to rule and reign until every one of his enemies is placed securely under his footstool. Lord, we know that the cities of man, even this day, will one day burn like Sodom and Gomorrah. So may we be found at your altar, taking refuge in your word and your promises, and the covenant that is secure in Christ, our Savior's blood. Lord, for any in the hearing of this message who have pitched their tent elsewhere and are just... uh, Unbeknownst to them, Lord, they live under the shadow of doom and they live in the shadow of a storm clouds of fire and sulfur rain brewing in the distance. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and that they would run from the city of man, run from the promises of this world, that they would reject, Father, the lies of Satan and they would run to the altar of the Lord and realize that there Christ was crucified for them, that they would repent of their sin and their confidence in the things of this world, and that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, who is crucified for our transgressions, who is wounded and bruised for our iniquities. Upon his flesh, the chastisement of our peace was purchased, and so we thank you this day. We have so much to worship you for. 
Help us to do so this week as we seek to apply this message by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.